Femi Oluwole, it's amazing to have you on the podcast. I feel like people know you much more for your views than they do perhaps for you as a person, although a lot of your personality comes out when you are doing your videos on Brexit or you're on television or you're writing, whatever it is. So I want people to get an opportunity to get to know you a little bit better. But of course, we've got to talk politics as well. So let's start with your first question, your first of your 20 questions. Why do you care so much about Brexit? Uh, because in 2015, I was working for an organization in Brussels that was focused on the human rights abuses in the Gulf states of Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, um, because human rights has always been my uh, my passion, my drive, and that's what I applied for jobs for at the, at the start of my career. And I was working I was working alongside British members of the European Parliament and against basically the policies of the UK, which were selling weapons to Saudi Arabia, which were being used to bomb hospitals and schools in Yemen, uh, which were, we were also training up the Bahraini police officers who were being who were then going back to Bahrain and torturing human rights defenders in Bahrain. Um, and I was. So for me, I was very much involved in what I felt was a battle for the soul of the UK uh, well before I'd even heard of the word Brexit. And it was a, a battle that was waged, in my view, between um, the EU, which had at least some principles that would keep us from acting too immorally, and the Tory government. And so when Brexit came up, it just felt like, oh, wow, this battle is about to be lost in a very bad way. We're going to get even worse with our human rights policy. And everything we've seen since justifies that position. Does Brexit in reality do you think harm us more than even you expected it would? Uh, I did not expect the harm to be as bad as it as it as it is, um, certainly not this quickly. I remember on the night of the elect of the referendum, seeing uh, one of the economists on BBC say that the pound was going quote almost vertically down, and it was only at that moment that I realised okay, this might actually happen faster. I figured it would be something that maybe in 20 years we might start to really feel. But no, we felt we felt it initially briefly on, the, on that on that day. And then the moment we left the EU single market in 2021, it then got progressively worse, even faster than I thought. Uh, but I did gradually start to wake up to how bad it would be as those years went on between 2016 and 2019. You argued that Brexit is making us poorer every day. Mm. Can you give us examples? So, I mean, from, from a from, from a macroeconomic standpoint, from a wide scale thing, we have the Office of Budget Responsibility, which says that our growth, well, our GDP, our gross domestic output, so the productivity of our, of our economy has been shrunk relative to where it would have been 4%, an equivalent of £100 billion pounds a year, um, which means that there's less money for public services, less money um, for uh, in, infrastructure building and dealing with the regional, inequal regional inequality that led people to vote for Brexit in the first place. Then there's also on a smaller on a smaller scale the fact that smaller businesses have been struggling to deal with all the extra red tape that comes with no longer being in the same legal environment as your main as your main uh, marketplace. There's the um, fact that we've had to burn well over forty thousand pigs due to a lack of EU butchers, and given that the price of food has been said to rise by six percent because of Brexit, a loss of of uh, livestock due to a lack of inability to actually cull it is. Um, problem. Uh, then there's the loss of access to a job market of 31 countries, which means that um, it puts more pressure on the labor market here. Um, there's also the issues of um, generally, the, the, there's also the fact that it's going to get worse at the end of next year, according to Jacob Rees-Mogg. He said that it would have been an act of self-harm to implement full Brexit checks on imports um, this year, 
but that's only been delayed until next year, which and he says it will increase the cost of food by up to 70%. So it's making us poorer now and it will make us even poorer later. Is it difficult for you to continue to talk about Brexit? I'm interviewing you in sort of mid to, to late October 2022, and we voted to Brexit over six years ago now. It difficult in what sense? Just difficult in terms of the, the, the critiques that you receive, the criticism that, that you receive, the, the abuse that you receive, being called a Ramona, being called a Winger, whatever it, it might be, being told by the architects of Brexit, effectively, some of them perhaps, that you should keep quiet and, and that it's you who is the problem. Yeah, and I've actually spoken to some Remainers who actually genuinely feel uncomfortable talking about uh, about Brexit these days. They feel like it's um, it's often viewed as some sort of middle class concern. All these Remainers who are harking back to 2016 doesn't they don't they know that people voted leave. But given that I just explained that Brexit is making people poorer every single day, it is the height of elitist lack of care for ordinary people and being out of touch to say that something that significant on the lives of ordinary working people across the country is not something that's worth talking about. Brexit is making people poor every day. And anybody who says that it's not worth talking about never really cared about ordinary working people and the millions of people whose lives are made that much harder by Brexit. So it's something you have to talk about. And the people who don't want us to talk about it are the ones who know that it's harmed the country and know that if we do actually talk about Brexit on a regular basis, they are gone because people will realize the extent to which they failed us from 2016 to 2019, at the time when Brexit could have been stopped like, and, and called out for the anti-democratic and economically disastrous policy that it always was. It's difficult to find someone in, in modern public life who appears to be as passionate and genuine in your concerns and in your activism as, as you. You really do seem to care about this. What, what's in it for you? In it for me, if we're going to go on the on the on the deep deep selfish um, roots, uh, as somebody who, um, I, I I as somebody whose childhood trauma means that I I don't really get a lot in terms of happiness. I always want my life to have meaning, and in terms of having meaning, it means I want to help as many people as possible with my life. And given that I happen to have the skills of the background in EU law, the skills of debating, the best thing I can do to help people make my life useful is to um, try and push back against the damage of A, Brexit, and B, the slightly fascist policies that have been inspired and almost justified by Brexit. One or two people have, have been asking me on social media to ask you, knowing that I'm interviewing you, who funds you? Does anyone fund this? So as far as funding goes right now, we have uh, Jeremy Vine, which you see me appear on uh, on a regular basis, as you appear on as well. Um, there's... Uh, Wait, the... What do you mean? What do you mean Jeremy Vine funds you? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, not Jeremy Vine personally. Um, Jeremy Vine, the TV show. Yeah, yeah I just get, I get a couple of quid from Jeremy Vine every now and then. <laughs> I'm glad we've I'm glad we've cleared that up. In other words, sorry, what you're saying is that you're talking about appearance fees. Yes, 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 yes. When, when you're asked on to TV shows, as I am, to talk about politics. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, but clearing, and... clearing that up doesn't count as an extra question. <laughs> sure, 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 sure. Uh, on top of that, um, I will occasionally appear on GMB. 
uh, again, appearance fees, uh, and then bits and BBC radio stuff, uh, which happens fairly regularly, as well as writing for The Independent. On top of that, there's the uh, Patreon, which I set up, uh, I think in about 2020, because um, uh, I wanted to keep doing this because the fight was never just about Brexit. Brexit was a symptom of the problem, and I wanted to keep going. And so I set up a Patreon, which basically said, um, I want to keep doing this. Uh, I don't have the same funding that some of our opponents have. And therefore, uh, if you want to help me keep doing this, so I don't have to take on a uh, quote unquote day job as well as this, which will then limit my ability to do output, uh, please help me if you can. Um, and so that's, and those are the things that keep me going. Can't think of any other revenue streams. There's a crowdfunder, but that doesn't, that's not a lot. Um, that's it. And did you give up your day job in order to do this? And, and if so, have you ever been tempted to go back either to that job or, or to a, a more conventional form of work? Uh, so, uh, yes, I quit my I, my dream job was always um, was where I got to in 2017, which was the advocacy trainee for the EU Fundamental Rights Agency. So advocacy, which is my top skill, um, EU, which is my top academic background and human rights, which is my top passion. Um, all three combined into one into one role. And I was. I was killing it in that in that role, um, but uh, I quit. I quit two months before the end of my twelve month traineeship uh, because I wanted to come back to the EU, to the UK, and and stop um, Brexit. Um, uh, could I go back? Um, not probably not to working for an EU in EU institution because I think they have rules about. I'm not sure what the rules are now about UK citizens, uh, but definitely working within the NGO sphere in Brussels. Definitely working within the UN could be something I could consider. But I almost definitely won't because um, my, as I said, I want to make my life useful. And the biggest use that I have is using the skills that I have. And my, my biggest skills are flourished in the debate for the future of the UK. But is your role as an activist and as a sort of social media influencer, not just of other people on social media, but of course, Twitter carries through, cuts through to the news agenda. Is that enough to sustain you in the long run, both financially, but also intellectually and from a personal fulfillment point of view i definitely want a larger platform a more mainstream media platform uh because i'm aware that there are limitations to my outreach to my reach on on social media i'm aware that not everybody has twitter not everybody have facebook or, or tiktok um I'm, i try and constantly expand hence the facebook tiktok youtube um twitter instagram um, and reach more people, but I do know that there's a lot of people that I am missing um, by just being there, which is why I may, I try and, my best to try and get on TV as much as possible in order to reach people that I don't reach on social media. Um, uh, and so I would ideally want to have a much more regular presence on mainstream television um, for the purpose of getting reach people that I can't reach on social media. Um, but I'm sure that'll come with the, I mean, I'm only 32, um, so it'll come. For me, a lot of people, perhaps in the public eye, who are in the media, who are on TV, who are in social media, might admit to ego being part of it. So wanting to be on television, wanting to be the face of something or being prepared to be at least to be the face of it might involve a degree of ego. I can honestly say, and I've I've only met you in person once, but it, it doesn't seem to me that you're driven by that. It really does seem, as I was suggesting earlier, that you're driven by the ideals, by your beliefs. Plenty of people, as we know, maybe roughly half the country still disagree with you. But nonetheless, you really passionately believe it. Am I am I right in thinking that ego isn't a big part of this and perhaps isn't a part of it at all? Um, I think 
Ego always plays a certain element of a role, but in terms of the getting on TV part, no, not really. I mean, um, you, you would have seen how much I was on TV in the years between 2017 and 2019. That notion, that thrill of being on TV as, as a thing, that's kind of dried out for me. For me, it's just it, when I want to get on TV, it's purely because I know that I'm not reaching the people that I need to reach if I'm not on TV. Uh, as for ego, though, um, I think where, where that comes in is the need to have a certain amount of ego in order to survive the business that we're in. Because if you're constantly having hundreds of thousands of people on Twitter, on on, on the social media um, channels telling you you're this, you're that, you're rubbish, you're giving you all the abuse imaginable, you have to have a certain degree of self-assuredness in order to just mentally survive that. Um, and so knowing who and what you are uh, is essential. So you've put yourself, you put your head above the parapet on the most contentious and defining political issue of our age. It shouldn't be, in my view. And I'm trying mm. to keep my views largely out of this podcast, but the climate should be the biggest view. But we went down the Brexit route. So that's where we are. And it's been deeply contentious. And you've put your head above the parapet on that issue. You shout from the barricades. And not just that, you've done it as a black man when one of the issues around Brexit was immigration. How difficult, how challenging has that been? It's definitely added a complication, a wrinkle. I know that in, 2000, uh, in 2016, when the referendum result came out, my first thought was my country will never be good again. Because if Nigel Farage has been able to convince the majority of voters to vote in his direction, then maybe I'm not even welcome here as a black man. And so he, he, he would dispute that, of course, but he's not here. I'll try and interview him later on in the podcast series. <laughs> Go on. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, if you stand in front of a breaking poster that shows um, uh, pe people of uh, ethnic minority, uh, ethnic ethnicity that is Eastern European, sorry, that is uh, mi Middle Eastern, uh, and yet you use that as an argument against e against immigration in general during a during a referendum where the topic is the EU and the UK is not part of the EU, EU asylum policy. You're using people that have nothing to do with Brexit yet have a different color skin to scare, to scare people about immigration. In my own personal opinion, my own honest opinion, that is uh, racist. Um, and it, and I felt that. Um, but it, the, what it, what it, what counted for me was going around the country and speaking to people who voted for Brexit and understanding that it wasn't driven by racism that wasn't the core problem even the people who allowed racist rhetorics to to influence them the core problem was regional inequality the real the the, uh, the anger at the, the fact that the system has not worked for their areas and so once you find out that the majority of people are decent and that you do there is a future of this country that doesn't have to go in the direction of Nigel Farage in the direction of Boris Johnson it's a lot easier. But yes, that doesn't change the fact that I'll get racist abuse on Twitter every week or so. Um, abuse, general general abuse every second of, tw of Twitter, but racist abuse tends to be a bit rarer than it was uh, a few years ago, um, uh, just because I think I'm less of a target to them now. How do you sustain, sustain yourself through the sorts of attacks that you're mentioning? How does your mental health stay intact? I've spoken widely about the struggles I've had in the past with my mental health but to be attacked in the way that you are and sometimes with a, a racist element must be incredibly difficult how you talked about being self-assured but has your mental health been robust throughout this process or have there been wobbly moments uh the answer is no it has not been robust throughout this process 
However, it's 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 it, it would be wrong to say that it's the abuse that's caused the the damage. Um, because I think the fact uh, I've actually been pretty much immune to the abuse, and that's part of the problem. Um, because when in 2017, when I quit my job, I basically sac sacrificed my professional life. I also uh, I had a group of friends when I was living in Vienna. Sacrificed that. I I hadn't lived in the UK for a while, so I didn't really have a circle of friends in the UK. So my social life was gone, my professional life was gone, my romantic life was gone because I essentially couldn't, given the Daily Mail's thing, I couldn't trust anybody romantically for for um, for, that, for that period of time. Um, I uh, no um, no work life, no professional life, no romantic life, no family life. I didn't see my family at all, even though they were going through t a, t a tough time at the time. Um, and and on top of that, there was the fact that I was constantly going around the country. Um, I, I was living, eating all my meals in service stations. So I often joke that my blood type was BLT. Um, I then went, to, I then had the issues of um, the death threats that I was getting, the fact that I knew mathematically um, all the factors that made Joe Cox a, a risk uh, in 2016, the fact that she was seen as in opposition to Brexit, she was seen as, as, as a member of the left, the fact that she had had a media presence. All those things applied to me, and she was killed by a white supremacist, and I'm black on top of that. So, as, so as far as I was concerned, I considered myself to be, and given the death threats that I was getting, um, I did not. I I assumed that at some point someone would 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 take a shot at me, and I did have a couple of instances of physical altercations during that process. Um, but I was very much my life was essentially forfeit, and I would I would basically think in my head, look, the the, the British Medical Association says that if there's a no-deal Brexit, it would cause catastrophic damage to the NHS, including, quote-unquote, putting us more at risk of deadly pandemics. So I was very much okay with the idea of my life being forfeit for the purposes of, of, of stopping Brexit. And on so when, I, so when it ended and we'd failed to stop Brexit, um, as far as my sense of value for the purposes of my life, it dropped to zero. Um, because everything I, I figured that because before I figured that the best thing I do with my life would to, to protect people and help people was to stop Brexit. Um, and then afterwards, I figured, well, anything that I do going forward will not be as good as that. So what's the point of my life? Um, and so my mental health dropped, health dropped to zero in 2020, right at the start of the pandemic, well, just before the pandemic. Um, and I'm now in therapy um, and that's necessary. But yeah, it wasn't really the abuse. It was the fact that I didn't care about myself, which is why the abuse didn't mean anything to me and had, and doesn't mean anything to me. It's extraordinary to listen to you talk about this and, and very powerful and shocking as well. Where are you at now? How's your social life now? How's your romantic life now? Um, well, uh, yeah, romantic life is significantly better than it was um, prior uh, during those uh, three, two and a half years. Um, arguably better than it was before because I was single for about 10 years and now I've had um, a couple of relationships since the end of Brexit. Um, so so that, that's definitely improving. As far as social life goes, still working on it. Um, uh, it's difficult when um, you, when I, I mean, this modern, modern day and age, unless you're going to a physical work every day, um, then it's difficult to have a circle of friends around you. So much of my work is done online. And so I live with, I live with my best friend. And so, especially during the pandemic, it was just we were Burton earning it all the way through. And we basically, he's basically, he's basically my my wife, um, uh, our husband. Um, and so yeah, it's it's um, uh, I haven't got much of a social life outside of him. Um, yeah.
Are you happy at the moment? I think happy is a ways off. Um, I'm hoping to get there at some point. Therapy is definitely a crucial step on that path. But um, I'm definitely better than I was when I had my crisis earlier this year. Um, uh, but uh, I still have ways to go. Give us a sense of what you do when you just want to chill out, relax, have some fun. What what is this? What is a dream day for Femi? <laughs> um so on, on a general day um the uh, the relaxation i use is either playing fortnite having a netflix session with my housemates um or uh, and going and going to the gym um if we're talking about a, an awesome day it would be it would involve uh going out somewhere that involves some sort of activity so bowling or cinema or um going on a crazy bike ride or a crazy camping session um something just stupid and fun and childish because for me if you the moment you let the child inside you die is the moment you actually start to die so i, li I like being childish what do you like in the kitchen and give us your signature dish well it's funny you should ask that because i spent um uh last night i made jollof rice which is pretty much if you ask most nigerian people they would say it's a staple staple of nigerian of nigerian diet it's basically you get um, tomato, onion, pepper, um, turn that into a stew, uh, add curry powder, garlic, bay leaves, and Maggi cubes, uh, and make that stew. And then you basically pour in the 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 um, the uh, raw rice, and it cooks and it cooks in the stew, absorbs it, and becomes a sort of orangey sort of rice, which is quite spicy. Uh, and that's that's the that is a signature dish of of many Nigerians. Um, on top of that, I'll make like chili con carne, carbonara, that sort of stuff. And mix it up and as well as homemade chicken nuggets so, so you are a british nigerian you're mm. born in this country i think you're born in darlington mm. your parents both hail from nigeria and they both immigrated to britain what's your relationship like now with nigeria my relationship with nigeria i've been there four times um uh, it's always interesting going there because there are a couple of feelings that i feel one is um, that I'm not a true Nigerian uh, because I remember once go going through the airport and and somebody asked me my name, one of the people security guards with the big AK-47s, and he was like, uh, "What's your name?" I said, "Oh, the Wale," and he and he criticized my pronunciation of my own name, um, saying, "Your Yankee tongue is ruining our language." Uh, I remember that very clearly as a twelve-year-old. Um, uh, so not feeling like I'm Nigerian enough to be Nigerian and not British enough to be British for some people is an interesting uh, place to be. Also, there's the sense of just insane privilege. When I look at um, uh, the levels of poverty that exist in some parts of Nigeria, not in the center of, of Lagos, because that place basically looks like Los Angeles, um, but in some parts of Nigeria, um, just knowing that if I'd been born a couple of houses, if, 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 if my parents had been born a couple of houses to the left or to the right, then my life would look absolutely nothing like what it looks like now. Um, and that privilege is a real sense that you feel when you're when you're over there, especially as a first generation Brit. What's your relationship like with Britain? Um, as I said, it's it's kind of evolved over the last few years. As I, as I um when I as I said, when when the election when the referendum result came out, I felt that this country will never be good again. That maybe they projected people like who look like me. Um, but as I've been across the country and spoke to people, even people on the other side of the argument, and understood that we are a much better country than the 
media would have us portray when I look at the fact that in all, all but three elections since the Second World War, the majority of people who voted for parties to the left of the Conservatives means we are a progressive voting country. We are a country that aligns much more with my type of views with the view, than the views with the, of the Conservative Party. So I do feel much more connected to the UK than I have been in the past. So maybe not as much as I felt in 2012 with the Olympics, etc. But um, I definitely feel like I'm much more at home here than I have in the past. Given what you've just said, that you're feeling that more people in this country ally with something different from what the Conservatives have been offering, spell out to us how strongly you feel about our voting system. Um, so I'll do it on a maths basis. The Tories got 44% of the vote and 56% of the seats in Parliament. And Labour got 32% of the vote and 31% of the seats in Parliament. That means that Tory votes are worth 31% more than 30, 30% more than Labour votes and 18 times more than Green votes. So as you said, one of the biggest issues of, of our time, arguably the biggest issues of our time, is climate change. Tell me how you solve the climate crisis if Tory votes are worth 30% are worth 18 times more than Green votes. On all the issues that matter in order to get in order to get a, a better country, be it Brexit, be it climate change, be it human rights, anti-racism policies, and uh, uh, gender equality, all those issues, they are all being stifled. The progress is being stifled by a voting system that gives more more power to the Conservatives than democracy should actually be affording them. And so, once we do get proportional representation, given that, as I said. The majority has voted progressive, voted to the left of the Conservatives in almost every single election since the Second World War for the last 80 years. We will get better policies on every single area. And that is something I cannot wait for because people have been, given that we have like the fourth most unequal country in, 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 in Europe, and given that we know that match, that the polling shows that majority people are in favor of higher taxes for the rich, are in favor of wealth redistribution in order to pull people out of poverty, yet the Tories and the Tory members especially are fundamentally against that. Though if we get a proportional representation system, then we will be able to address poverty significantly better. And that's something that needs to happen. Are you excited about the prospect of a Labour government led by Sakir Starmer? Uh, I'm excited by the prospect of a Labour government in the sense that I know that the Labour Party has just voted for proportional representation. Keir Starmer is increasingly proving himself to be a problem and a barrier in the way of that because the party, according to the party of democracy, should be supporting PR right now. The only reason it isn't is because of him. So I, I, in the, in the, if the election happened now, given that I know Labour has voted for PR, I would um, probably vote Labour just purely because I know that if, if Keir Starmer continues to go against the wishes of his party, he's gone anyway. So he either jumps on board or he gets out of the way. Either way, we do get PR. Final question to you. and Maybe I'll cheat and wrap a couple of questions in, into one, but you project great certainty in, mm -hmm. in what you say. And you've had an opportunity in, in, in the last half an hour or so to, to say exactly what you feel. Do you think you ever get things wrong? And you've got over 380,000, I think, followers on Twitter. How often do you think you actually convince someone of your position? How many people, either through social media or through touring the country, have you persuaded? Uh, as for do I get things wrong? Um, yes, I do. Uh, and I try and make sure that when I do get something wrong, I type the words I was wrong on Twitter um, so that I can at least search all the ways in which I've been wrong. Because I know that I'm a stubborn, stubborn person. I know that. 
In fact, I value my friends based on their ability to convince me I'm wrong because I know that if I don't have people that can convince me I'm wrong, I'll become the same sort of problem that I fight against every day. So I need to know that I'm, I need to know that I, I can get things wrong because the, I often say that I serve no God but logic. So if the logic is against me, I need to recognize that as fast as possible so that given with I have the responsibility of 380,000 followers, I need to be able to correct that as soon as possible. As for your second question about how many people that I, I convince, I have no way of knowing that. Um, I know that when I do speak to people in person, um, it, it works really well. And I know that I think my favorite thing to hear is, Femi, I don't agree with everything you say, but um, I respect the way you say it and I, and I respect, and I respect how, you, how you do it. And that that's my favorite thing to hear, because that means that I'm reaching people that aren't on the same echo chamber as me but are at least hearing my hearing what, what I'm saying. And, and, and given that I have faith in the logic that I put out, among them will be a, a significant number of people who are convinced by what I say. Femi Oluwole, it's been a real privilege to have you answer my 20 questions. Really good fun. Pleasure to meet, pleasure to see you. <laughs> yeah, we've met before, Femi. Yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. <laughs>